Alrighty, welcome to another episode of Stock Talking. My guest today is Jay Mintzmeyer. Jay runs Value Investor's Edge, which you can find on Seeking Alpha, and it's just a wealth of information on the shipping and maritime space. There's no one whose opinion I respect more on shipping, and I'm super excited to have him on the show today. Jay, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Ben, and uh, thanks for the very kind and warm introduction. I'm excited to chat about shipping today and uh, maybe a little bit of energy, and we'll see where the conversation takes us. For sure. Yeah. As you said, when we were kind of chatting offline, it's a crazy market right now with a lot of volatility. So we can we can jump into all that. I figure I could start with a, a broad question on shipping in general, because um, I think for those who are generalists looking in like myself, this definitely feels like a market driven by cycles. Um, there are la- long down cycles. And I guess now some people think we might be in an up cycle. So wanted to get your thoughts on how that affects your entries, exits, how you kind of view shipping in general with the backdrop of, oh, you know, there tend to be these very, very long cycles. Yeah, absolutely. Well, shipping is at the end of the day, it's a commodity like anything else. And it's driven by supply and demand. And I've been following shipping closely now for over a decade, about 12 years. And so I've always been, you know, kind of in the weeds looking at the different supply and demand fundamentals of maybe it's bulkers or tankers or container ships or whatnot. But now it's especially interesting because it seems like, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but it seems like we're entering into a bit of a global commodity super cycle. Um, so that makes things even more exciting. And in terms of the price volatility, which leads over to shipping rate volatility, we saw that with container ships the last uh, couple of years. And of course, the stocks themselves uh, being very volatile, which allows an opportunity to trade um, as well as invest overall. Totally makes sense. Uh, I mean, I think some of what I try to pay attention to, and maybe this is the wrong angle to come at it from, is you have a lot of these companies, and obviously it depends on what part of the industry you're in, like whether that's container leasing or shipping or LNG. Um, you start to look at it and you go, well, if these companies repeat what they did the previous year in 2022, and then maybe you get half of that in 23, the, the math just is kind of insane. Um, I'm wondering, like, do you kind of look at some of the companies that you follow as a play on, you know, one or two years of forward earnings get you to, you know, almost break even on the stock? Or is there kind of more complexity on that in terms of thinking of, you know, a five or 10 year horizon? Well, different types of stocks uh, in my portfolio have different sort of approaches. Uh, For generally speaking, for like dry bulkers and tankers, uh, they're pretty pure commodity. There's not a lot of, uh, you know, moats there. There's not a lot of huge scale uh, there's not a lot of long-term contracts in the current tanker and bulker market. So for those, we use something called net asset value. Uh, we look at them and we also look at the mid-cycle valuation of ships to kind of see where we are in the asset cycle. And so we're really looking at discounts. So it's it's almost more of like, here's a basket of stocks and which ones are the most uh, prime to outperform based on valuations. Now, there's different types of stocks like container lessors, where a bulk of their business is three, four, five, six-year charters. And for those kind of companies, we're really looking at that backlog. We're looking at that future free cash flow. And, and you alluded to it. There's there's a couple of them out there. Uh, Denaus Corp, DAC, has, has been one of the big ones, one of the nice winners for us, where they trade it less than two times. Once you, once you net out the cash, uh, the net cash on your balance sheet, they trade around two times uh, forward free cash flow. And most of that free cash flow is guaranteed. It's locked in. So you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a play where like you get all your money back, essentially, or at least the company gets all their money back in two years. And everything else is kind of upside. So yeah, I mean, that's one approach. It just depends on which company and which part of the cycle you're in. Yeah, I was going to ask you about valuation next. You kind of alluded to it, which is nice. Um, Yeah, it's interesting to think about some of the things you might recommend are a large discount to NAV, or maybe there's um, some way to value NAV that the market isn't factoring in versus something like a container lessor where you perhaps have locked in uh, earnings or or free cash flow that you can look at a little further ahead. 
I want to get into a bit uh, how you go about figuring out what the best opportunities are. And I'm, I'm wondering to what extent that's impacted um, by some of the, the different ways you might think about valuation in the shipping space. Because I know, I think it was um, International Seaways, you know, you, you kind of had a, a nice uh, discussion with the CEO about a 40% discount to NAV there. Is something like that, uh, is the right way to think about it, you know, you have all this upside if, if it could just re-rate correctly and get to get to NAV or do you prefer something where, you know, the way to think about it more is kind of doing your traditional DCF? Yeah, well, something like International Seaways, one of the reasons we really like them is it's a risk reward play. We look at the different scenarios and, and to be completely honest with you, I mean, we're recording the 15th of, of March, uh, so early uh, Q1 of 22, early in the year. We don't know for sure how the tanker market is going to turn out in 22. I'd love to say we know, but we just don't. I mean, and the whole entire world right now is so volatile with the geopolitical stuff that's going on, obviously, with Ukraine. And, and that's that might just be scratching the surface, honestly, with some of the volatility. We're looking at whether or not Iran is coming back into the uh, global tanker fleet. There's some stuff going on in Venezuela. Uh, there's a lot of moving parts. So international seaways is a risk reward play. And what I mean by that is if the market recovers, if we have a decent tanker market by the end of the year, uh, that could be a $40 stock. And today, I believe it's trading around the 17s. And But at the same time, as you mentioned, and, and I've, as I've covered as well, it's trading at a 40% discount to net asset value. So that gives you a bit of a margin of safety. And they also have a free cash flow catalyst coming up this summer that I think is underappreciated or um, under acknowledged by the market. And, and that's selling out of their joint venture, which does a thing called FSOs, which are oil services uh, platforms. So if they sell out of that FSO, which they're planning to, or, or at least refinancing it because it's debt free, uh, they're going to get about 150 million at least in free cash flow, maybe 160 or 170 million. So even if the market's terrible, they're going to have a huge free cash flow catalyst. And I believe they're going to take that free cash flow and they're going to plow it into either a tender offer or a repurchase program buying up their assets for cheap. They can buy up you know, a dollar worth of tanker assets for basically 60 cents on the dollar. So even if the tanker market is bad this year, I think International Seaways easily gets 20 or higher by the end. So that, that's kind of the risk reward play. It's like, you know, it's $20 in, in a mediocre weak market. It might be $40 in a good market and, and we're paying 17. Whereas if I go to another tanker company and there's several of them out there, um, I'm really betting on the market directionality. Right. I'm, I'm buying if I'm buying a company that's at 100 percent nav, the market does well. I'm going to do well with that company. In fact, if there's enough financial leverage, I might even do better than I'll do with Seaways. But if the market's terrible, now I got to worry about the balance sheet. Now I got to worry about potential dilution. I got to worry about where the stock's going. So that's my approach with Seaways. Uh, I think it, a lot of people don't like that company because it's a little boring. Uh, their leverage is really low and, and, and some people want high leverage, right? Because they're really bullish and they want that maximum, you know, pedal to the metal. Uh, but for us, uh, a tanker market being uncertain, being a, a trough market right now, I mean, the benchmark VLCC rates even today are still negative. They're like negative $3,500 a day. So, you know, I definitely want to go with a more conservative approach. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And it's interesting because I think well, a lot of people think shipping, they think, Oh, what's the macro backdrop? Am I making a play on macro? And what you're describing kind of sounds a little more event driven. You know, they have these kind of liquidity events coming up where they'll get some cash in the door and they can use that to buy back their own stock at a discount. Um, and yeah, you know, talking about risk reward here, it'd be great to hear more about, you know, for value investors as your own portfolio, how you think about allocating to those different opportunities. Cause 
Yeah, based on some of the questions I've heard you ask CEOs, I know you t think a lot about capital allocation in terms of you know next dollar in the door. Is it going to shareholders? Is it going to growth? What's going to happen? I think thinking about how you allocate your own capital is equally important, right? Like, what do I do with my next dollar? So yeah, we would love to hear your thoughts on kind of how you think about how to spend that next dollar, either for the value investors edge portfolio, which obviously I know has done excellent over the last couple of years, or your own portfolio. Yeah, well, just first of all, looking at the companies, I mean, you nailed it. You have to pick a company where you trust the management to not squander your capital. Because at the end of the day, it, it's your company, right? If you buy shares in that company, that's that's yours, right? Or at least a percentage of it is. So whatever they do with that money is, is very important to future returns. And, you know, I hate to just throw in, it depends at every you know question you ask me, but it depends where you're at in the cycle. It depends on the, the macro backdrop and the risk factors. So if you're early stage in a cycle, or if you're still heading downward, I mean, you know, it's a, if you think about a cycle, if we're still in the trough, I mean, because I usually use baseball innings, you know, to say like, oh, we're in the second inning of this thing. But I mean, when you're in a trough, like it's almost like a negative inning. It's like the team is still in, you know, in the dugout or whatever, running over strategy. And if you're in a situation like that, then I really like a play like Seaways, where you're kind of hedging your bets, you're doing the risk reward. But once you're in the first, second inning and things are running, then that's when I get a little bit more excited about taking on leverage and getting a little bit more uh, exciting plays. So, so one exciting place, and just to you know, hopefully whet some folks' appetite um, that I've moved into recently is Scorpio Tankers, ST and G, and that's a firm with <laughs> very high financial leverage. In fact, we were concerned that they might have to do an equity equity dilution later on this year if the market didn't turn. Well, they uh, they did something really smart. They sold fourteen tankers. Uh, and they took the cash proceeds from that. They paid off some debt. They built up liquidity. And now the equity dilution risk is off the table. Now that the Ukraine crisis has kicked off all sorts of tanker reroutings, the product tanker market right now is actually doing really well. Uh, and there's all these little factors that are driving that. And so, you know, that's an example of like, I think we're in like the first or second inning with product tankers. So that's why I like Scorpio tankers with the leverage, but I think we're kind of still in the dugout or still in the strategy session. We're not even out on the field yet with something like Seaways. So that's just two examples, but I mean, you can run them through. I, I guess one last point, um, when you get later in the cycle, when you get, you know, maybe a sixth or seventh or eighth, or you know, you, know, you never know exactly what inning you're in, right? Or we'd all be billionaires. But, you know, if you're eighth or ninth inning, then you want to be looking at something that's very long-term contract, very fixed, not a lot of uh, risk going on long-term. And I think, you know, in our, in our pre-talk before we started the podcast, we talked about container lessors. Like the, and these are the companies that actually own the metal boxes, the 40-foot or 20-foot metal boxes that uh, shipping goods go into. And so one company I've talked about a lot uh, publicly, so I don't mind. I can't tell every single Value Investor's Edge pick here. That wouldn't be fair to our members. But one company I've talked about publicly a little bit before is Textainer Group, stock symbol TGH. And that's where I, you know, I don't know what inning we're in, but I think it's later. I mean, it's pretty obvious that we're in later innings, right? I mean, it's been a two-year run here in container ships. And that's a company that has, you know, eight, nine, 10, even 12-year fixed contracts on their boxes. So I really like that company as a later cycle play. So Seaways, it's like one of those, like we're still in dugout, you know, Scorpio tankers first or second inning. And then, you know, something like tech standard group, I'm getting in that because I think maybe we're sixth or seventh inning or something like that in container ships. Yeah, I really like that cycle analogy. You know, it's funny with the container lessors, even though you would think they'd be immune to it. And I think a lot of uh, the business model provides uh, some nice protection there. You know, when, it, when I, you know, a very, a very long time ago, when I used to do con container securitization as my job, I feel like the the ask on from a lot of the credit officers would always be, 
you know, like when do these containers get released and what will lease rates be at the, this time? And, you know, if we enter a recession, when these leases come off, what happens? And, you know, I think you go back to 2015 or 2016, tech center kind of got dinged, um, you know, when there was an industrial recession and a lot of the leases ran off. And I think it was Hanjin was one of their big lessees that encountered some problems. Um, but you know, th I'm kind of getting off on a tangent. The question I really wanted to ask was about thinking about where we are in the cycle. You know, you said that's kind of the, the billion dollar question. And for some parts of the shipping space, it, it matters a lot. Answering that question for others, perhaps it's, it's less relevant. But I'm actually interested in where you think we are in the cycle right now. Because, you know, depending on who you follow on Twitter or who you ask, a lot of people seem to think, you know, we're in getting out of the dugout, maybe first inning of, of a 10 year, you know, commodity bull market. Um, but th those are the real commodity bulls. You know, I think on the other side, there's people who think, you know, we're building ourselves up for massive oversupply. And if you look out, you know, one to two years from now, um, we could have a huge supply glut. So, yeah, it'd be great to hear your thoughts on that. And also, like, kind of some of the data points you look at to determine, you know, where are we in the cycle? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question, Ben. And, and I'm assuming you're talking about the container ship market, because if I look at the order book mm -hmm. for tankers or dry bulk, we're at generational lows in the order book. So there's there's certainly no supply glut to worry about. In yeah, yeah. yeah, let's talk container ships. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So with container ships, we have a pretty big order book. Uh, it's approaching about 25, 26% of uh, the order books, about 25 to 26% of the total fleet on the water. So if you just look at the last five years, that's pretty high. I mean, the last five years has been, you know, eight, nine, 12, 15% order books. So getting up to 25% is, is, can be a little bit worrisome if you look at a five-year chart. Now, if you look at a 20-year chart, uh, 25%, um, we're still in the low, I think we're like the fifth out of the last 20 years, the order book's like the fifth smallest it's been. So it's actually fairly small on a longer term trajectory. But the big thing to think about with container ships is upcoming environmental regulations and what that's going to do to the future fleet. So if you think about it, there's one environmental regulation called EEXI and there's something called EEDI, which is related to that. And that what that's going to do is it's going to restrict the total amount of carbon emissions that these different ships can emit. And if you don't qualify, if you don't pass, it's a year-by-year -year inspection starting in 23. And if your ship doesn't qualify, then you have to get what's called an engine speed limitation. So that means your engine can only, you can't use it at 100% power. You might only be able to use it at 70% or 60%. So a lot of these ships starting in 23, and it's going to be a rolling five-year period that goes out to 27, 28, these ships are going to have to go slower, um, which is going to make them less attractive to customers. Also, it's a synthetic reduction in supply, global supply, if you think about it, because if all the, if the ships are forced to go slower, you need more ships to move the same amount of goods, right? It's just a, it's just a math problem. So when I see that 25% order book, and I see how many ships are over 20 years old, rust buckets, if you will, and I know that they didn't invent the uh, eco-design hulls and eco-design engines until about 2013, 2014, um, I had a chart up and we did a webinar the other day and it's over 50% of the global container fleet is basically going to be obsolete by 2030. So you're going to lose half the fleet in about seven, eight years. So, and this 25% order book takes you out to 2025. So, you know, it, does it worry me? Like, are the day rates going to stay as high as they are right now indefinitely? Hell no. I mean, the returns on assets at these rates are so high that you can buy a new ship and pay it back in like five or six years. So what does that do? That incentivizes growth. Right. So, so it's a commodity market. Eventually it's going to reprice itself. But my point here is that, you know, people who talk about like this extreme glut just aren't, I, I don't think they understand like what the supply side is made up of. It's a bunch of different buckets. It's not one big monolith where everything's the same. It's not like coal or, or oil or gas where, you know, the supply is the supply and it's all the same. Yeah, it's super interesting. So, so these regulations, you know, neither of which I'm not familiar with, it, it seems like, you know, tw this 23 cliff is kind of coming up. 
um, are like a lot of companies planning to kind of to take the hit on the on the speed or what what's the general reaction I think for people for companies that are in this position? Yeah, so right now the the world is so short of these ships that you know the speed is just something that adds to sort of the bullish dynamic if the demand side can you know can keep up its end of the bargain, right? And that's always kind of the the question mark. Right? We don't know exactly what global demand is going to look like in twenty three and twenty four. We don't know what the global trade volumes are going to be. Um, you know, generally in certain markets like bulkers and tankers, conflict is actually, I hate to, I hate to say it like this, but conflict's actually bullish because it just causes so many disruptions in containers. It's, it's less clear because containers depend on global trade and, and a conflict isn't necessarily a good thing for future global trade. So it's a little bit more murky. Um, but to your, I guess, to your actual question about what are these companies going to do um, at this point, they're just, they're planning on raking in the free cash flow. They're going to be able to do that through at least, you know, 24, 25 on their current contracts. Then when they get to 25 and the contract runs out, they're just going to see what happens. I mean, they're paying the ship is most of these ships have already been mostly depreciated. So it, it's just like a bonus run that these companies are enjoying. So, you know, it's almost like I talked about with international seaways, you know, it's a risk reward play in the sense that, you know, even if the market's terrible in 25, they're going to make so much free cash flow between now and then that you might just demolish the ship. You might just get rid of it. And that's fine. You've made a ton of money. Now, if the market is still tight in 25, I don't think it's going to be, to be honest with you, I don't think it's going to be tight in 20, in late 24 or early 25. But if it is still somewhat tight, then that's just a bonus. You know, you're going to sign a couple more years on the, on those leases. So that's kind of how I see it. And I think that's also how the management teams see it. They're not, they're, I don't think these management teams are counting on these old 20-year ships to keep going, you know, past 24, past 25. I think kind of the base case is that it gets to 24, it gets to 25, and then it gets recycled and demolished and whatnot. Yeah, that makes sense. It kind of sounds like your preference as a shareholder would be for them to return the capital to you, considering 24, 25, who knows what the reinvestment opportunity would be? Yeah, it depends. I mean, if they can secure a, an attractive long-term contract on a new build or, or a modern ship with somebody like Maersk, somebody like Costco, uh, you know, some of the best counterparties in the world, then that's, that's attractive too, because, you know, you can secure a long-term contract to Maersk and you can get, you know, 80% bank leverage against that thing at like at 3% or, or a low cost. So that's attractive as well, but on the older ships, absolutely. I would prefer that, you know, you sign one more three, four year contract. And as that contract runs down and that free cash flow comes in, I would either like dividends or if the shares are trading at huge discounts, which I mentioned to Corp BAC earlier. We're long, I'm long to Corp. I'm, I'm long to the four companies I've mentioned it, in case that's not obvious to you, <laughs> yeah, to yep. listeners. Um, I'm, I'm talking my book, of course. Um, nothing here is an investment recommendation or, or any anything like that. Positions may change. Uh, we are recording on, on the 15th of March. But yeah, Corp trades at a huge discount to net asset value. So I actually don't want more dividends. I think their current dividend is 75 cents a quarter. I think that's fine. Um, I want share repurchases because that way the company can take a dollar uh, of cash and, and, and plow it in the shares that are trading at 55, 65% of NAV. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, assuming you believe in the NAV estimate, I mean, I guess, I guess the next question would be like, why don't you think the market buys that, you know, a, a dollar of NAV is actually a dollar on the stock price? Well, th there's, there's a couple of things. With container ships, when we say NAV, we're talking about adjusted net asset value. And, and the way we come up with that is we take the current value of the ship that's on the water and we adjust it for the current contract. So if the ship is contract free, which there's like very few ships that are contract free because it's such a hot market. But if the ship is contract free, it's easy. You just take the current market quote and you're done. But if the ship is on contract, then what we usually do is we take an EBITDA, like discounted cash flow model, and we 
put an ending residual value in for that ship. And we usually use the mid-cycle or lower than mid-cycle rates. If it's more than 20 years, I plug in demolition value. I assume that ship's going to be demolished, recycle it being the contract. So when I say NAV, I'm, it's more of like a net present value, right? So like, I think a lot of people think, oh, NAV, like the market goes down, NAV's going to crash. Well, the way I calculate it, I mean, not really. Um, in fact, in some ways, it, it, when you the, the way you set up your net present value calculations, and sometimes the rates can go down, but your NAV actually goes up based on based on the discount value and, and things like that. So, you know, I think I think first of all, it's a misunderstanding of, of what those metrics mean. Um, secondly, um, I think people have concern or a lack of trust for management. Uh, I think there's like a misnomer or a trope out there that all these shipping managements, they're idiots or they're going to squander your capital or you can't trust them or, or whatnot. And it's odd to see that with some of these names, like uh, Denaus Corp is one of them, Costamere, CMRE is another, I'm long that one as well. Um, these are companies with 20 plus year track records of excellent capital management. And, and, and folks look at a 10-year stock chart and they get they see, oh, well, the stock was in the gutter for the 2010. So those guys were terrible. Those guys were idiots. Well, those guys were navigating through an eight-year bear market. Right. I mean, it, it's you can only do what you can with the market you've been given. Right. And those guys protected equity. They kept the company afloat and, you know, they, they saved the company. They it didn't go bankrupt. They didn't do massive dilution. And, you know, they delivered at the end of it. Well, I hope it's not the end of it. But to this point, they delivered what has been a let me make sure I do my math right. A 19 bagger in the last year and a half. So, you know, these guys are great capital allocators. I, I don't have this big mistrust of them, but I think some people do. So I think the misunderstanding of NAV and the lack of trust is what drives a lot of those discounts. Yeah, this may seem like a bit of a tangent, but like talking about the management teams, you know, it's always struck me kind of on some of your podcasts. It seems like you've interacted with these guys a lot and know them pretty well. Like obviously you've been doing it for over a decade. Um, but yeah, interested kind of to hear some of the stories around like, how did you get to know some of these management teams? And then also, I guess like, yeah, your opinion counts for a lot because you, you you've know these people um, and, and kind of had, had experience with how they've acted through cycles. Like, uh, what do you have a, a read on how these management teams will act this particular cycle or kind of uh, have you been hearing kind of any uh, of the same, I would say, sentiment from management teams as, as it applies to what the future might look like for container ships and rates? Yeah, I think most most of these management teams, I mean, ship owners generally tend to be optimistic people, but I think most of these folks have been cautious throughout the entire cycle. And if anything, they haven't been aggressive enough now that that's with hindsight. Right. I mean, I think the decisions they made with the data they had at the time were fine, the good decisions. But looking back at the last year and a half, it's like, man, I wish they would have been more aggressive. Right. I wish they would have bought more ships a year ago. Right. And of course, a year ago, folks would have castigated these companies if they would have went out and bought more ships. Right. Um, but that would have been the smart move in, in, in hindsight. So I think a lot of these folks are, are cautious, but, you know, they're optimistic about the long term potential of shipping. Right. That's the business. That's their entire, you know, that's that's how they've grown up. That's what they've operated in. So I think they're looking forward to these environmental regulations that I talked about, the ones that come in in 23, 24 and, and work onwards. And they realize that the global pressure and, and political pressure and economic pressure is towards decarbonization. Right. So they're starting to think about what what are the next technologies? Is it going to be ammonia fuel? Is it going to be uh, hydrogen? What are we going to be doing? And, you know, they want to be part of that somehow. Right. And they, and they want to be investing in ships that will be serving the world in 2035 and 2040 and 2045. And we're going to need a lot of container ships to service the global trade lanes in 2030 and 2040. Like that's not going away. So I think a lot of folks that are, you know, generally bearish on shipping 
um, they're acting based on information of the last 10 years. They're looking at 2010 to 2019, 2020, and they think that's a normal cycle. That's not. That was like a 10-year aberration. It was a 10-year bear market. And it was hangover from what happened in 2007, uh, 2007, 2008, 2009. By the way, we talked about order books. We talked about how it's 25% today. Um, back in 2007 and 2008, the order book was like 55 or 60%. So uh, just to give you a comparison of, of the two markets. And oh, by the way, there was not this huge environmental regulation coming. So it's like, you know, folks who compare this bear market or this bull cycle to the last bull cycle, there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of nuance under the water there. Yeah, that's super interesting to hear. And I think a lot of folks have tried to make the 0809 comparison and just hearing your, your thoughts on that, like clearly it's not that comparable when you look at some of the data. Um, and also good to hear, you know, everyone kind of thinks about this capital cycle and goes, can I trust, you know, the guys with the keys to not overinvest and think about capital allocation the right way? So it kind of sounds like some of the trends are, are pretty positive there. Um, wanted to shift the conversation a bit from container ships to container leasing, because I know, you know, we're both long in that space. Um, you know, can't wait to hear your thoughts on, on Textainer and Triton and um, some of what's going on there. I mean, you made an interesting comment that these environmental regulations seem extremely positive for container ships, but containers perhaps are more correlated to what goes on with world trade. So, yeah, it'd be great to hear you talk about some of the discrepancies between how you think about container leasing versus how you think about container ships. Yeah, well, historically, and, and this goes back, you know, 30, 40 plus years, uh, container leasing. And, and when we just sort of focus on the podcast, just so that you're familiar, we're actually talking about the 20 foot, 40 foot boxes. And these are pretty, <laughs> this is as commodity as you can get, right? It's literally a cube or, or a rectangle or whatever, what have you. Um, this has always been more of a financial play, more of a banking play than it's, than it's really been about shipping. And most of these contracts are usually five, six, seven years, and they're to the big industrial shippers. So like the Maersk, the CMA, CGM, the Costco's, the companies like that. So these have always been a little bit more financial plays, and they've always tended to trade more in line with other leasing companies or even with banks. At some point, people looking at the interest rate curves and, and things like that. Um, it's been a pretty smooth business with two exceptions. One exception was 2008, 2009, a little bumpy uh, for obvious reasons. And that had to do more with the credit markets. That had to do more with like sort of the Lehman Brothers and all the fallout there than it actually did with shipping companies not honoring their contracts. In fact, the vast majority of shipping companies honored all of their contracts. So it was just more of a credit risk. Um, then we had another bump, you know, 2014, 15, and a little bit into 16, when this company called Hanjin, uh, it was a South Korean shipper, it went bankrupt. And that was the biggest container shipping line bankruptcy in modern history. Because most of these companies, when they run into financial difficulty, they restructure the equity. Or they, and they, sometimes they wipe out some of the unsecured bonds, but they issue new bonds and they issue new equity. And they don't cancel their container box contracts because they need those. Right, that's a um, cash flow generator. Right, they don't have container boxes. They don't have a business. So Hanjin was like one of the only bankruptcies, really in modern history, where the company itself basically disappeared and ceased to exist. And the ships were handed back. They the ships went to auction. The boxes were handed back. It was a bit of a disarray. Um, all the other financial difficulties these companies have had, and, and there's several. There's several companies that have had difficulties. Uh, HMM. Uh, Hyundai was one of them that had difficulties around that time. Uh, Zim is a popular stock today, but Zim had a troubled uh, run in, in 2011, 2012. And, and even companies like Zim and, and PIL uh, was another small liner that had problems. All those companies restructured amicably with the box lessors and, and more or less the contract stayed intact. Um, it was the, the end equity holders that you know had to take the pain of that. So, so Hanjin was kind of like a one-off. Um, so this has always been a really, really stable industrial business. 
Um, so, you know, we're not necessarily worried there as long as the counterparties are strong. And in and, and the liners, like the Maersk and, and like I mentioned Zim, they're stronger than ever. I mean, they're drowning in free cash flow. So even if the market turns sideways, these companies have four, five, six years worth of, of a cash hoard to uh, fend off a, a weaker market. Yeah, that, that's actually, that brings up a good point that I definitely wanted to ask you about. So the lessees seem like they're getting a lot stronger. As you said, record profits, you know, a lot of them have been delevering. So it's always surprising for me to kind of jump on some of these tech tenor and trading calls and hear, oh, you know, they're getting these huge leases at, at really high rates. Because, you know, I'm thinking, why couldn't the shippers just buy the containers themselves and why do they need to lease them? So the banks really prefer to deal with the Triton or a Textainer because it, it takes the risk and puts it into like a separate vehicle. You're only dealing with one entity. You're not dealing with five or six liners. You're dealing with one entity, Triton or, or Textainer, the two big ones. I'm long both of those, uh, by the way, that's TRT and Triton, Textainer, TGH. And so the banks are willing to offer you know, 75, 80% warehouse facilities at very competitive rates. Uh, Textainer and Triton are paying around LIBOR plus about 2% on some of their facilities. And LIBOR is the you know, London interbank rate. It's, it's kind of going a little bit out of style, but anyways, it's just a floating rate mechanism. And these companies are able to swap that into a fixed rate. Because some folks ask me like, what's the inflation risk and all that sort of thing. These companies are being prudent. I think Tech Standard Group has swapped 92 or 93% of their floating debt into fixed. So basically no inflation risk there. And they're getting fixed rate secured debt at 80% leverage for seven or eight years at like 3% all in or 2.9% even. And the banks are willing to do that because they know the history of this industry. They know that even when liners have had difficulties, liners have been able to recapitalize, liners have been able to even go through bankruptcy even, and the, and the container box contracts have not been touched. If the bank would deal directly with the liner companies and the liner company had financial difficulty, then the bank has to knock on a lot of doors. Then the bank has to go to court whenever the company is getting restructured. It, they're not, they might even be a general creditor or a secured creditor, depending on what bucket they're in. When they deal with Textane or Triton, there's like another layer of protection and, and handling for that bank. And that's why they prefer to, to give these great deals to the lessors. So, I mean, kind of a long answer, but the lessors have a cheaper cost of, of debt, a cheaper cost of capital than the liners do. The liners are more or less a little bit more asset light, and they can get a better return on equity by just doing what they do best, which is shipping cargoes around the world. They're not, their specialty is not financially like engineering, like a, a bunch of boxes, right? Their specialty is delivering goods across the world. So they can focus on their core competency and they can deal with a box lesser that kind of warehouses that risk. Yeah. Your explanation makes sense to me. You know, the banks would prefer to kind of work with those two and, and they don't want to take the keys in the situation with the liners. So yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, it's another thing I, I was really interested to ask you, I think about sometimes is the banks seem to have a different view of the risks uh, associated with Triton and Textainer than the stock market does? Like, it feels like on the debt side, you know, these companies have totally re-rated, right? They're getting lower fixed rate debt than they ever have uh, previously. And, and some of that could be rates coming down and other macro factors. Um, but it seems like, you know, they've been able to refinance all this debt at extremely attractive rates. But the stock has kind of continued to trade at like, you know, six or seven times earnings, you know, depending on whether you're talking about Triton or Textainer, maybe earnings like aren't as fair as, you know, looking at free cash flow or something. But it seems like both management teams, you know, Triton and Textainer are telling you the equity is really cheap. So I'm wondering, like, what do the banks and the debt holders see that the equity is not seeing? Well, the banks and, and those side of the business kind of see what we just talked about, right? They're looking at the warehouse risk of, you know, secured debt based on these metal boxes. And they're also looking that we're in a global inflationary environment. So the value of those metal boxes, it's steel and labor. That's what, you know, the two components that make those boxes more or less. 
and labor is only getting more expensive globally and steel prices. I, I don't want to say they're only going up, right? Steel markets can be volatile, but the long-term trend is obviously higher uh, for all commodities. So banks are looking at that and they're not too concerned about the residual value risk because there's two parts of your residual value risk. The first part is the counterparty risk with your client, whether it's like a Maersk or, or CMA CGM or whatever that look-through risk is. The second part is the residual risk at the end of life, you know, 13, 14, 15 years down the road, you know, those boxes are going to have to be sold. You know, they're going to be sold to, you know, people building a tiny house, right? Or, or they're used a lot in like Africa. They use them for like storage and warehouses. Like there's warehouse farms in Africa that are basically just old containers, right? With locks on them. And, and it, that's kind of the end of life use. So that's the two risk factors the banks are looking at. And the banks are very comfortable with that risk. They're not too concerned about it. I think shareholders, equity holders, they, I, I think incorrectly lump a company like TGH or TRT and Triton into the same bucket as all the other shippers. And they're like, oh, wow, this is a shipper and it's trading at five times earnings or six times earnings or seven times earnings. And they're like, oh, well, that's kind of expensive because, you know, Denouse Corp or Global Ship Lease or one of those companies is at three times earnings. And I'm like, why would I buy one that's valued twice as high? Well, the value of the business is so much better and the, the forward visibility is so much safer. Um, but I don't think the market has really appreciated that yet. They're not giving a Triton or a Textainer, I think, the proper multiples. Um, if you compare it to something like... Uh, GATX, which is another uh, leasing company, they're at 15, 20 times earnings, right? And, and something like uh, Textainer is at six and a half, right? Seven, four earnings. Um, so I, I think it's just a matter of we're waiting for this thing to re-rate. And once it re-rates, yep. I, I don't think it's going to get to 15 times earnings. I think that's probably a little stretched. Um, I'm not really sure if earnings are the right multiple either. We, we actually use free cash flow yields, but um, earnings, I, you know, I would argue that 10 to 12 times earnings is probably about right. Um, so that gets a company like Textainer uh, Group, TGH, well north of 60. And of course, right now it's, it's trading around 37, 38. So it's, it's pretty mispriced in my opinion. Yeah. I'm kind of excited. We could get that double engine of increasing earnings and increasing multiple. And, you know, thinking about, you said, you know, we kind of just had to wait for it to re-rate. I, I feel like the management teams are aware that they maybe need to play a part in helping these guys re-rate. Um, you know, I've seen you ask on a couple tech standard calls I thought was interesting about, uh, I, I, let me know if I'm getting this right. I think it's a 20% free cash flow yield in the common equity. And the idea is like they could buy back some of the preferred at 6% and then get like an arbitrage there. Um, but you know, my point here is I think they're thinking about kind of financial engineering they can do to make this look more attractive. So yeah, I mean, do you agree with that? And I'd, well, yeah, I'd love to get a little clarity on what your thought is with what tech standard could do with its capital stack to, to get that arbitrage there. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That that's the correct question to be looking at, and, and that's why. Well, I hope it's the correct question because it's the you know question I ask with the management teams. You know, my my arbitrage idea or or my sort of maybe it's too clever by half, but my my sort of angle there is: look, you could issue this thing called preferred equity, which is basically just a stock that pays a guaranteed dividend. It's really all it is. It's not debt. Um, it doesn't have any sort of covenants. Um, if things go weak in the company, they don't actually have to pay the dividend. They can defer it. So it, it's literally just another type of equity. And they can issue these preferred equities in this market at about six to six and a half percent fixed. And that six and a half percent is fixed indefinitely. It's never going higher. Whereas like, if you think, if you compare it to a common equity instrument, that pays a dividend, right? And that dividend can go higher over time. So, you know, some folks are like, well, preferred is more expensive because it's six and a half and your common only yields three, but that's because the common only pays out 10% of what's available, right? That's not the, that's not the right comp. Um, so one thing I've brought up to them, I'm saying, look, your common equity is trading at 20, 21, 22% free cash flow yields, and these preferreds are at six and a half. So why don't you issue 150 million or 200 million of these prefs at six and a half and buy back tender for common shares, you know, that are trading at 21, 22%. 
And yeah, it's financial engineering, but you're basically just printing money because you're finding people that are willing to pay six and a half percent and you're arbitraging it out with the market that's only offering you, you know, 21% yield. So that that's kind of the play there, Ben. But as to what the companies themselves are doing, both of them, both Textainer and Triton, are starting to pivot more into repurchases. And I think that's really going to play out in 22 and 23 and even into 24. The reason they didn't repurchase as much the last two years is because the growth opportunities and the returns from that growth was so attractive that it was actually even higher than the returns from repurchases. So the companies plowed basically every spare dollar they had into growth to, to you know, meet this market need for those capacities. Well, now that market need has more or less been met. And we think by you know, May or June of 22, so basically just two or three months from now, most of that growth is going to be delivered, it's going to be financed, and it's going to be producing free cash. So then a company like Textainer and Triton, we think they're going to plow as much as 60 to 70% of their free cash flow into repurchases. And what happens with the stock price when you got that kind of repurchase going on? Uh, all else equal, the stock price is going higher. So ironically, when the growth slows, the stock goes up. I mean, it's it's ass backwards, Ben, but that's just the way the market works. They, the market is so skeptical and doesn't understand what's going on here that it's not properly rewarding growth. So once the growth stops and the repurchases start, that's when these stocks are really going to take off. Yeah, it's fascinating to me because it seems like both of them have telegraphed that a lot. You know, I think on each one of the the most recent quarterly call, you know, you can hear Trident or Dex Center saying, "Hey, like we can see the market normalizing. You know, we're going to be returning capital to you." I think both have slides in their decks to the effect of, you know, after maintenance capex and um, all this other stuff, this is the free cash flow you end up with. You know, we we're talking about double digit yields easy on both of them. Um, you know, whether that's through buybacks or uh, dividend increases. So yeah, with all that, it's like they're telling you exactly what they're going to do. It's it's amazing to me the stocks continue to trade at fairly discounted. But I guess it's to our benefit as shareholders, right? Because that makes the dividend or the buybacks a lot more attractive. Yeah, I mean, it's it. I've almost never seen a case like this where it's so telegraphed and so obvious. But these companies, most people have never heard of these companies. In fact, I I have a Twitter account where I talk about you know shipping and a little bit of energy and and a little bit of geopolitics, not too much of that, mostly just shipping. And, uh, you know, I, I brought up once, I actually put a poll out a few months ago and I said, who here? And, and this is this is a Twitter account where I talk about companies like Zim and Denaus Corp and stuff all the time. So very, everyone on the Twitter accounts heard of those companies. I said, how many of you have heard of Textainer or Triton? And it was like, I think 10% of the people were like, yeah, I've heard of it. I like it. And about 30% are like, yeah, I've heard of it, but I don't know what they do. And 60% or more of my followers. And these are people that are really dialed into shipping. Right. This is a weird you know, subsection of the population. 60 or 65% of the people were like, no, like, what the hell is that? Like, what are those companies? So they really have kind of a name recognition problem, if you will. Uh, I think these companies have spent the greater part of the last decade working in very small institutional sectors and circles, and they haven't really been out there marketing to a, a broader audience. Most uh, retail investors have never heard of these guys. And even some of the institutionals, like I provide consulting services to family office and hedge funds, and a lot of these guys have never heard of them either. So they really have a lot of work to do on the promotion side. But I mean, as investors, like, yeah, it's good if they promote and get the stock prices higher, but I want them to focus on operational excellence. So I'm not upset that people don't know about these companies, but you know, I want to buy when nobody really knows about the company. And then if they ever get you know super popular down the road and they're trading at valuations that maybe aren't attractive to me, you know, that's when I'll be backing away, right? Yep, yep. 
Yeah, it's funny. I always tell people, you know, look to your left or your right on the highway. You can, you can see the Textainer and the Trident containers, like they're branded. So it's funny that you're right. Like I mentioned these companies and, and nobody's heard of them. Um, yeah, I wanted also to pick your brain on why uh, Textainer is having the greater risk reward than Trident. You know, I, I'm also long both, but I'm, I'm way more allocated towards Trident, just kind of being the bigger player, owning more of the market. Um, and also like, I guess people could also bring up, you know, a lot of their competition is private. But another thought here is, you know, you think about like Mitsubishi's coming to this space and I, I think they bought CII and Beacon. And, you know, it's not like these are the only two guys playing here, um, but they're, I guess supposedly they're the only two publicly traded ones. But yeah, why, um, why TechCenter over Trident and, and should we be worried about competition at all? Yeah, oh, so two good questions. Um, I'll start first. I think I'll answer them in reverse. So should we worry about competition? Um, anytime the returns get borderline absurd, um, yeah, you should start to worry about competition. But then you have to look, worry about the moats and you have to look at the market concentration. And both Triton and TechStainer, I think they do a good job in their slides illustrating that this market is very concentrated in three ways. First of all, it's concentrated in the container manufacturers. There's really three of them and they're all kind of in a, I don't want to call it a cartel, that's not the right word, but they're all kind of in an association in China. And this is 90% of the manufacturing capacity for new metal boxes is in China. And it's, it's kind of tightly controlled. It only takes about three to four months to build a new box. So it's not like shipping where you can get out of hand, right? You can put in these orders for ships three years down the road. Like for example, in 2007, 2008, people were ordering ships. And then by 2008, 2009, they're like, oh shoot, we don't actually want that ship anymore, <laughs> you know, but it's still coming, right? Uh, with the boxes, it's three or four months of a lag. So once the market stops slowing, the manufacturers stop. But that market is very tightly controlled. So a new entrant with no credit history, with no major backing, can't just come in and place an order. It's like, no, dude, like we have our customers, like get back of the line. Maybe we won't even work with you. So that's part one. Part two is the customers are increasingly concentrated. The top five liners control basically more than 50% of the global trade. So your customer network is fragmented and the customers want to deal with somebody they can trust. These container lessers offer repair depots and servicing depots around the world. Uh, more at more than 40 locations. So if you're going to start a new company, you, you also have to set up repair and drop off and pick up depots around the world. That's pretty expensive to build out a network from scratch. So that's a big problem. And then the, the big, the, the third part of the concentration is that Tech Standard Group and Triton alone are, are the two the two world's largest uh, container lesser players. So they have many, uh, they have uh, management scales, they have the uh, financing scales, they have the relationships with the banks. Right. A bank isn't going to just deal with, you know, Jamin Smire LLC that wants to buy 100 containers. Right. Like they laugh me out of the office. So it's it's I hesitate to word, use the word moat because it's not the Warren Buffett, Ben Graham type moat. But it's very difficult just to like waltz in here and start up a new business. Um, if the returns were solid for five, 10 years straight, like if we saw the, the huge ordering booms that we saw in, in the late part of 2020 and throughout 2021, if we saw that for five years straight, then yeah, I'd be worried, you know, four or five years down the road, we get some new entrants. But we've had about a year and a half or two years of blistering orders, and it's already starting to taper off. So I, I think if a new entrant was considering coming into the market, they probably already decided not to. So that, that's kind of the back half of that. Why do I like Tech Standard Group, TGH, more than Triton? And I'm long both of them. So I'm not, uh, it's nothing negative about Triton. Um, in fact, a lot of the uh, older hats in the industry, you might be one of them because I know you covered Triton way back when, um, tend to favor Triton because they're a little bit larger. They have a little bit better scale and their management is perceived as being a little bit uh, sharper. I gotta use my words, a little bit sharper. And part of that's because they've been around a little bit longer. They have a little bit more scale. And the big part of that is they didn't get stung by hand gym. 
in 2015, 2016. And that was actually the old management at uh, Tech Standard Group. So the current guys weren't, weren't part of that the fiasco, at least not directly part of it. But there's kind of a little bit of a, a stain on, on Tech Standard Group from what happened with, with Hanjin. So I think that's part of why the market doesn't trust them. So that's why the valuation discount exists, in my opinion. Why I want them going forward, Tech Standard Group grew their container base at almost double the rate that Triton did over the last year and a half. So those new contracts that we talked about, those really juicy uh, yields they're going to get for 12, 13, 14 years, uh, TechStandard had almost doubled the growth rate. Secondly, TechStandard Group, yes, they got hit hard in 2014, 15, 16 with Hanjin and the related fallout, but that also means those crappy five and six-year charters that they were basically forced to sign back then, they're all expiring right around now. They've expired last year, this year, and next year. So their roles, and the roles is like a contract that's expiring and needs to be renewed. Those contract roles are almost double the rate at Tech Standard Group as they are for Triton. And right now is a very, very good time to have a contract that's up for renewal because you can get very, very strong rates on those renewals. So Tech Standard Group signed more new contracts in 2020 and 2021 than Triton as a percentage, as a percentage of their asset base. And they have over double the roll rate going forward in 22, 23, and 24. So it's really just where you want to be where the growth is at. And the growth is at Tech Standard Group. Triton's doing good. I'm long Triton, but the growth rate at Tech Standard Group is basically double. That's super interesting. Yeah, it's funny to think about. You actually want uh, leases coming off because you can release them at a lot greater rates. Um, so yeah, that makes sense to me on the growth and then, and then the role. Um, I, I mean, I guess like from a valuation perspective, when you look at, I mean, obviously you've modeled this stuff like how crazy do you expect the valuation to get, you know, say the stock trade sideways, right? Are, are we looking at like significantly higher earnings in 22 or 23 than we saw in 21? Yeah, I think uh, earnings are earnings are obviously going up, but I think what I really look at is, is the free cash flow levels, which are, are going even higher than earnings. Earnings are, are masked a little bit by depreciation and, and non-cash charges and things like that. And anytime you make a huge asset investment, you're going to have an elevated depreciation charge for the for the first few years of that asset. So earnings are going to go up a little bit, but free cash is what's really going to go up, and that's what that's what makes me excited because it's free cash that pays out the dividends. It's free cash that pays the goods and tertiary purchases. The earnings, I mean, that just looks nice on paper, right? But with Textainer and Trading, the stocks have went up over the last year. If you pull them up on a stock chart, you'll be like, oh yeah, they're you know they're up 30, 40 percent year over year. But the stocks have actually gotten cheaper in terms of price earnings, in terms of price to free cash flow. The quality and baseline level of the business has outpaced the stock. So it's it's the opposite of what you usually see in a growth stock. Usually in a growth stock, you, you have your growth, right? You have your revenues and profits and cash flow growth. And you have a multiple growth on top of that because people are rewarding companies for doing well. And investors are willing to pay a higher multiple. With Textainer and Triton, you've had the opposite. Everything is getting better. The credit risks are getting better. The banking relationships are better. The contract duration is longer and the multiples are getting lower and lower and lower. So right now at uh, Textainer Group, yeah, they're trading around, I believe it's $37 today. Um, that's basically about six times, maybe a little under six times forward earnings. And that's not just for 2022. That's, I can basically telegraph these earnings out to almost 2030. I mean, the, the contracts are that long. Uh, 2028, if we're really being nitpicky, is, is how far I can accurately, I think, telegraph out those earnings. And it, they're at basically less than six times forward earnings. And that's great. I mean, this is the kind of company that I would think, I, I mentioned earlier, 10 to 12 times, I think is a fair ratio. At 12 times earnings, would I be buying today? Um, probably not. Would I buy at 10? I think so. I think at 10 times earnings, this would still be a cornerstone holding in my portfolio. Yeah. Let, let me ask like a dumb question kind of on the different ways to win front. So you, know, you have 
text center kind of floating around, you know, whatever, six times or, or so. Um, and free cash was getting higher. Like there's a lot of cash coming off it. You know, it's, it's a pretty small market cap. Like I think, you know, whatever, under 2 billion. And, and there's a lot of private equity money floating around. Like we already, it's not private equity, but we already, we already saw a bank buy CAI for like seven times, which I think is a, a worse company than Texaner or Triton. Like, okay, so why wouldn't a, a bank or private equity come in? Or even like, I think Triton buying Texaner might actually be accretive if you look on a long enough timeline. So like, why doesn't Texaner just get swallowed up by someone who sees the the returns here? It's a great question, Ben. I, I think uh, Triton, I don't think Triton could get away with it uh, regulatory wise. I mean, maybe they could. I if the regulators just sleep in the wheel, maybe. Um, I think the customers would have a fit over that. I don't think the container liners would be really nervous if those two tied up. That makes sense, yep. More than half the market. So I, I don't think that sort of tie-up makes sense. I, I think maybe I, there were some rumors around that maybe Triton would like gobble up CAI or something like that. And, and I think that might've been able to happen, but there's already been so much consolidation in this sector that I don't think you can get away with it at that level. Those two, I don't think they can play ball. I think if you see any consolidation, it's in these, these smaller fragmented uh, private lessors that just aren't competitive. And, and CAI, yeah, it was a, I, I don't want to bad mouth CAI, but yeah, it was a, it was a significantly inferior business uh, model compared to these two companies. And if you look at, you know, you look at price to earnings, yeah, it was around seven times, but they were also, they had some leverage difficulties. They had a higher cost of borrow. Their free cash flow was restricted. Uh, I, I think if you bought out a Textainer group, again, it's 37 bucks today. If you actually did a look through enterprise value basis and you looked at like uh, enterprise value per CEU, which is just container equivalent unit. That's how you can value these things apples to apples. Uh, you'd be looking at like a $45, $50 plus buyout. Uh, and that's just, a, and that's at CAI's multiples. CAI was an inferior business. So, you know, why hasn't somebody already done it? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I'd love to do it. You know, if, if someone, you know, came up with me and I was like, hey, let's do a $45, $50 buyout tomorrow, I'd, I'd go in on that. I'd be a limited partner in that buyout. Um, but I, I don't think there's a lot of appetite there. I think folks are kind of nervous of the global macro situation. I don't think folks really understand these companies or they're looking at a little bit more juicy opportunities, right? They're looking at the actual container ship lessors. That's the biggest pushback I have been from investors I talk with. Almost everybody I talk with, once I explain this company, once we go through the fundamentals, most people actually like it. They understand it eventually. They like it. They understand why I like it. They agree with me. They're like, yo, Jay, that, yeah, that's a good company. Good find you have there. But it's not exciting enough for me, man. I want to be in Zim. You know, it's at two times yeah. earnings. Or I want to be in Denalis Corp. It's at three times earnings. And man, that thing has went from five to, you know, 95. <laughs> you know, that's a that's a 19 bagger, Jay. And, you know, this thing's boring. You're putting me to sleep here. So I think that's kind of the problem, too. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm fine to just sleep well at night and accept, you know, what I think could be easily a 10% IRR or, or more. So, you know, their, their loss is my gain. Um, yeah, I guess like, you know, as is always the case when I'm thinking about stuff I own, that's a big position. I'm like, what am I missing here? What are, what are kind of the largest risks? I thought, I mean, I'll throw one out. I thought it was interesting to hear Texaner say on a call a while ago that a China-Taiwan uh, you know, conflict would be very harmful to the business. So I guess you could say, Anything disruptive to world trade, or you know, maybe China container manufacturing is, is a risk out there. But it, what like what keeps you up at night on, on both of these names? Yeah, well, I mean, the China Taiwan situation. <laughs> yeah, World War Three would not be good for investments of any sort of any stripe. Um, so no, it's a it's a valid risk. I don't want to like laugh that off. It's a, it's a serious one. But yeah, I mean, China risk with shipping is the biggest one. I mean, that's just your big geopolitical macro current. There's a lot of folks that tied a lot of lines between what happens in Ukraine is somehow connected to like what happens in Taiwan. And, you know, I, 
it's militarily, I mean, I, I have a military background, I have a geopolitical background, I'm an international relations scholar. I, you know, it, it's not as simple as all that. And even if it was as simple as all that, you got to imagine Xi Jinping is looking over there at what's going on in Ukraine and saying, man, we're not going to chase Vlad in the battle here. Like, you know, this is something where like, we'll let Russia unsort themselves out of that one. And, you know, take that 2025 Taiwan thing and push it back to 2030. <laughs> I mean, it, I, mean I, I shouldn't make light of that situation, but, but I mean, China is the big risk. I don't necessarily fear, and maybe maybe I'll look completely stupid in five or 10 years. I hope not. But I don't necessarily fear like a Taiwan invasion. I just don't think militarily that makes any sense. Geopolitically, it doesn't make any sense. Economically, it doesn't make any sense. Um, what I do have concerns about is Chinese economy, macro down the line. Uh, their housing sector and their property development sector is under a lot of strain right now. Uh, China is still pursuing as of today, or at least of yesterday, the headlines came out yesterday, China is putting more cities back into lockdown, right? The, the Western world is, is, at least it seems like we're emerging from COVID. It's kind of like, you know, we got to live with it, right? We vaccinated as many people as we could. We, we did all the mitigation measures. The variants have gotten less deadly over time. Herd immunity has started to develop. Uh, China's not there yet, right? They have a vaccine that I'm not, a, you know, maybe qualified to calculate exactly how efficient it is, but it's, I think it's been proven you know, academically and, and medically that it's not as good as the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, right? It's just, it is what it is. And, and China has always taken the zero COVID approach. So I'm a little nervous there, uh, Ben. I don't want to just like, you know, laugh it off. Like there's China risk, but I don't think the China risk is a Taiwan invasion. I think the China risk is a, a significant slowing of their economy. That's what, that's kind of what keeps me up at night if, if there is something. Yeah. And I think it's a, a friend had sent me recently a, a chart of, I think it was like Chinese, you know, uh, construction bonds or like some real estate, uh, like fixed income measure. And, and, yeah, I think people lose sight of like you know, the real estate, uh, portion of China is having a real tough time right now. And, you know, people were worried about, uh, the faults there, you know, not, so, not so long ago. Um, so I, I sometimes think about, oh, like how much of, you know, the steel and coal is driving China right now. And if they slowed down, um, you know, I, I definitely on FinTwit and other spaces here, a lot about, you know, this is the the hot steel name or the hot coal name. And I don't think container lessors are immune from that, especially on the steel side, right? Like if people are trying to to think about these on a residual value basis, you know, steel is a big input. Um, but still, you know, I go back to, I think you've tweeted this out. If you just look at these are the leases they have locked in, you assume, you know, normal uh, credit performance, you know, even just the, the runoff value seems higher than the current stock price. Yeah, and, and Tick Standard Group has provided a slide that basically shows the residual contract value and, and Triton has supplements that basically do the same thing. Uh, so the, the big, I mean, the risk that where you would have an equity problem in Triton or Tech Standard is if you had massive liner counterparty bankruptcies. That's where you'd have a legitimate concern, Ben. That's where you'd have a problem with, you know, not just getting a return on your capital, but even getting a return of right, your capital that you've put into that company. And that would be a scenario where companies like CMA, CGM, MSC, Maersk are actually going bankrupt. And not just like restructuring, like actual doors are closed, company no longer exists, type bankruptcies. And we've never seen that much bigger than Hanjin. Hanjin was about 1%, about 1.5% of the global market. Um, MSC and Maersk are 10 times that big. Uh, we've never seen something like this. Anytime it's even came close, governments have stepped up and backstopped these companies. In fact, that's what made Hanjin so worse. The, the South Korean government was stepping up to save Hanjin. And at like the midnight hour, they decided, nope, we have two companies. We have HMM and we have Hanjin. And they're both, they're both not too great. And we're going to pick one, the less sucky one, and we're going to backstop that one. And, you know, sucks to be you, Hanjin. You, you didn't pay enough political donations or I don't know. <laughs> their executives didn't yeah, give fair enough, enough. Uh, donations. 
Yeah, I'm willing to take my chances on another Hanjin not happening. So I feel comfortable with that risk. Hey, I figured you know, we're running up on time, but I wanted to actually close with a name that you know you actually I think said was your your largest position on Twitter. So Diamondback Energy, which you know would appear to be kind of off the you know the beat and shipping path, you know, although maybe you know, there's obviously an energy relationship there. But yeah, it'd be great if you could quickly pitch the stock, tell us what you like about it, and then maybe I'll ask some follow-up questions. Well, sure, Ben, but you know, you you said it yourself. I'm a little bit out of my lane. Um, it's a it's a um, a close lane, right? I've, I've shifted over one notch. I took put the blinker on and moved over a little bit. So it's not an industry I'm unfamiliar with. But energy is not my core specialty. So I work with a few other folks that are are even more informed than I am. Uh, one of them, his name is Michael Boyd. Uh, he's been my research uh, sort of partner and affiliate for for several years now. He does he does great work there. So that's where I get a lot of my energy insights from. The reason I'm really excited about Diamondback Energy here is almost similar to how we talked about international seaways is the risk reward. And one of the pushbacks I get on Diamondback is folks are like, well, they hedged half of their 2022 production. Like, why don't you like, they screwed themselves. Like they shot themselves in the foot. Like, why don't you want hundred percent unhedged? And it's like, look, I mean, all I know if, about future oil prices, I've got feelings, right? My opinion is that oil markets are entering a super cycle. We're in like the second inning of that super cycle or third inning, but I don't know that for sure. Right. All I can do is look at the oil futures curves, like for WTI and for Brent. And I look at Diamondback and I, I model it out and I say, no matter what the oil price is, this company is cheap. Right. Uh, right now it trades at about $124, $125 a share. It's, it's pulled back a little bit uh, with this, you know, Ukraine oil volatility. I mean, we've seen some crazy stuff in the oil market. At $125, Diamondback is priced roughly for $60 oil. That's that's if six if oil WTI, West Texas Intermediate, was priced at $60 for the next five years. Diamondback is fairly valued around 125, 130 bucks. So that's basically my baseline hurdle. And then I look at like, okay, what if oil is $80? If oil is 80, this company is worth more than 160. If the oil is 90, it's, it's pushing 200, right? And, and we have a front month that's all over the place. But I mean, it's crazy. I mean, the front month has been anywhere from, I think before the Ukraine thing kicked off, it was like 90, low 90s. It went up as high as I think 115, 120, the West Texas front month. Today it crashed down, it was like 93, 94. I mean, it's all over the place. And so I look at the curve and the curve is more stable, but the curve itself has moved up, you know, 10, 15 bucks a barrel. So I'm in a world where Diamondback's base valuation Let's say it was 70. Well, 70 gets me to like 130, 140. That one, 130, 140 Diamondback valuation is pushing like 200 right now. And so if oil does really well, Diamondback's going to 200 plus without a doubt. If oil does poorly, I already know I have an advantageous entry point. I already know that I'm fairly valued all the way down to about $60 oil. It's just a risk reward play. It's a solid management team. Final point, I think the most important point is that they've completely revitalized their balance sheet. They have no significant outstanding debt for like five or six years. They issued 30-year unsecured bonds two weeks ago, 30-year paper. And they've told people, we're going to do a minimum of 50% free cash flow in shareholder returns via dividends and buybacks. And once we're done revitalizing our balance sheet, it's going to push towards 100%. They haven't said 100% on paper, but they basically insinuated that once the debt's taken care of, all the free cash flow is going back to shareholders. So that's just, that's just exactly what I want to see here, Ben. This is harvesting season. Let's get those repurchases going. Let's get those dividends going. Yeah, it's, it's the capital allocation story is really interesting. I, I mean, what's ca- what I've been thinking about recently is some of these oil producers, maybe it was because they were burned last crisis, who knows, but it seems like more of the capital allocation is going that way. And, you know, you would think if, if U.S. producers felt the pressure, you know, 
let's produce, kind of let's get us out of this this Russia crisis issue. Yeah, wouldn't they be ramping up production and say, you know, our, our next dollar is going towards CapEx? Well, if they were all doing that, then I'd be a little bit more nervous about the investment prospect. But there, there's two reasons they're probably not going to be doing that. Well, I guess there's more than two. There's probably at least three. First of all, if you put CapEx down and you try to hit up these wells and, and start working through your inventory, it's not an immediate. Like you can't get that oil on in one month. Diamondbacks are a really well-operated company. They have, they have a lot of inventory and they have a lot of developed inventory. But even for Diamondback, we're talking at least a six-month lag time, probably nine months, maybe even a year before that significant production increase hits the market. So that's, that's the first problem. Like the, the production doesn't come immediately. Um, the second problem is you look at the political risk. I mean, you have politicians out there talking about like windfall taxes. And I mean, this stuff is nonsense, but you have this weird sort of political mixed messaging out there. Right. These oil companies have been told for 10 years that they're part of the problem, that we want to get rid of you, that we want to transition away from oil, that the future of oil is dim or whatever. Right. And now on a dime, all these politicians are saying drill, but then they're saying windfall taxes and then they're saying they're going to pull the leases. And like, it's just such a scary, uncertain political environment that like they're not going to want to spend money on CapEx. And, and that's what that's what the politicians, I think, don't get. It's like you guys want these guys to drill, but you're like, <laughs> it's just, I just, I'm not a politician and maybe that's why, but <laughs> it's just not the message I would be sending. Yeah. Um, and then third of all, it's kind of, third of all, you already kind of alluded to it. it it's sort of the PTSD of what happened last time. And I, I think a lot of these companies have learned their lesson and they have long suffering shareholders. I mean, Diamondback's done great. This is one of the best oil management teams in the country. You could argue maybe even in the world, the structure they developed here is, is really something special, but the stockholders in Diamondback over the long term of the last five, six years have not made any money. They're, mm -hmm. they're, if you look at like a 10-year chart, you, you look at, I think, 2014 is when they last peaked out of the oil price. I don't have the chart right in front of me, but investors from that point, from 2014, are still in the red. So those investors want to see dividends. They want to see some buybacks of cheap stock. They don't want to see CapEx. They've lived through that before. They just want to see the money in their pocket. Yeah, that makes sense. Like half decade of kind of shareholders seeing dead money. Um, yeah, the capital allocation definitely will, will make people happy there. Um, yeah, let me kind of close on a, a macro question related to this. I've been thinking about a lot. I mean, I, I can never figure out the macro, but yes, it pertains to oil prices, right? Like, uh, you know, I definitely have seen a lot of producers where, you know, trades under PV10 at a certain expectation and you see stuff like Diamondback. You know, I had uh, Tim Weber or Twebs on my podcast and he was talking about Amplify Energy had a really good pitch there. Um, it, it's amazing to see these discounts and think these names have a lot more room to run. But then also, you know, this is kind of a, a terrible generalist got myself in some trouble, but it's like I'm also long some retail names. And I, you know, I think the consumer is going to continue to be strong. And uh, retail has done terrible this year. I mean, I think it's the worst sector to be in. And when I look at those names, I'm thinking, are, do people think the consumers tapped out and we're headed towards, you know, $200 oil or something? So it, I, I suppose what I'm getting at is it's confusing to see oil, you know, most recent oil's in a correction right now, which has shocked me. Um, so I'm, I'm not quite sure what the market's trying to say, you know, stocks down, oil down. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on how to make sense of this whole thing? Well, I imagine it's going to take a couple of days for this pod to get out. We're recording on the 15th of March here on a Tuesday. <laughs> right. uh, there's this entity called the Federal Reserve, and they got a big decision they got to make. And I, I think all eyes are on the Fed. I mean, as much as we'd like to say it's, it's all about Ukraine and Russia and humanitarian-wise, it, it is and it should be. But fiscally, monetarily-wise, economically, it's all about what the Fed's going to do. You know, are they going to hike a quarter point? Are they even going to hike? I mean, before Ukraine, we were all talking about maybe a, a, a 0.5, a 50 basis point hike, right? Which would be pretty, pretty hefty. Um, I think folks are nervous about that, right? And retail stocks, Ben, I'm with you. The valuations are attractive, but, but a lot of that retail stock money was hot money that came in 2020. 
right? There's that big COVID crash and then, you know, Wall Street bets type stuff started happening. And then like every, everybody in their hamster was like a day trader. And a lot of these folks for better or worse, they went into two categories. They either went into stuff like Kathy Wood's ARC fund, which we all know what happened there. Yep. Or that was part, you know, growth tech growth stocks, which I understand why they, they had cool stories and exciting, you know, presentations. And like, that's the kind of stuff that new money, uninformed money, if you will, goes into. The other thing they all went into was like COVID recovery plays. And I, I mean, I think the underlying intuition there was smart. You know, it was like, well, these are beaten down stocks. I want to be like the Buffett and the Munger and buy when there's blood in the streets. But I think a lot of these brand new, you know, retail, not familiar with the market folks started piling into on one hand, Kathy Wood's ARC fund. And on the other hand, a lot of these retail recovery plays. Well, ARC has been an absolute bloodbath. I mean, margin calls left and right, all sorts of issues. There's stocks in there that are down 75, 80%. I think a lot of the ownership overlap between those two categories is high. And so when you have a lot of pressure from something like the ARC fund imploding, you also have a lot of carryover risk from the same folks that are owning these retail stocks. Now that's a simpleton view of maybe what's going on there, but I think it does probably explain a little bit of the stock weakness we've had in some of these retail names. That definitely does. I think, you know, as a, as an owner of some retail names, I consider that a positive, right? Cause it's kind of non-economic sellers, um, as opposed to sellers who are actually motivated for fundamental reasons. So I, I'm going to hold, we'll see how this plays out, but you know, it's, it's amazing to see kind of some of the depressed valuations there. Yeah, absolutely, Ben. Well, good luck to you. It's not my lane, so I'm not really qualified to talk about the fundamentals one way or another. But that's just my that's just my you know viewpoint of maybe why those stocks have been so weak. I mean, obviously, high oil prices are probably not going to help the consumer. That should go without saying. But I don't think it's as much oil price related as it is what's going on in the rest of the market. Totally makes sense. All right, yeah. But before we close up, Jay, where can people find you if they want to know more about you and Value Investors Edge? Yeah, thanks, Ben. I appreciate that. So I'm on Twitter uh, at Mintzmeyer. That's kind of a fun one to spell M-I-N-T-Z-M-Y-E-R. And I'm sure it'll be with the podcast there as well. Um, if you're interested in our research, you want to really deep dive into shipping, you can go to www.mintzmeyer.com and that'll take you straight to our research landing page. And you can either sign up for a monthly plan or an annual plan. And that's where you'll get you know, all the data analytics and insights into the shipping market. Awesome, Jay. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Ben. It was fun.